0: Alright, welcome back everyone to the Didactic Mind Podcast. This here is Didactic Mind episode 84, The Lungs of Hell. Very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners, very warm welcome to my readers from the site. This place wouldn't be the same without you, so thank you for constantly showing up, thank you for uh, commenting on the articles, thank you for providing your feedback via email, And if you haven't already done so, if you're new to the podcast, then by all means, make sure you like, comment, share, and especially subscribe, both on uh, Podbean itself and on the site. All of the necessary links are down in the description box, either on the site or on Podbean. So there's really no excuse. Make sure you sign up and that way you'll never miss a new episode, never miss a new upload. You'll be fully up to speed. The podcast has been kind of It's sort of a bit up and down in terms of output and production, obviously, because of various personal circumstances. And things have just been somewhat busy uh, over the last uh, few months. They've slowed down significantly in the last six weeks, which is, believe me, very, very nice and very important. And uh, it's nice to be able to do this stuff again, because uh, I honestly missed podcasting during the two months or so that I just wasn't doing it. But I was busy with uh, actual work. I mean, the paid kind, and I just didn't have time. I mean, I was just doing programming and coding like six, sometimes seven days a week, um, and it was pretty miserable. Uh, it was. I'm. I'm glad that experience is over. I'm glad it's finished. I don't ever want to do something like that again. But uh, I learned a lot in the process, and I learned some things during that process and in the weeks subsequently, that I'd like to share with people and today and in future posts, perhaps. And really, the theme of today's podcast is all about how the world is devolving before our eyes and why we shouldn't really be surprised. The rather evocative title comes actually from a Megadeth song Uh, Into the Lungs of Hell, it's an instrumental on uh, So Far, So Good, So What? Which is actually one of their less good albums. I mean, it's not as bad as Risk, but it's still pretty bad. It's not a good album, there's a lot of things wrong with it. And back in the day, of course, the major thing that was wrong with it was the production. It sounded like it had been recorded in a tin can. And the reason was um, essentially because the band blew about 80% of the production budget on cocaine. 80% Uh, 80% of it basically disappeared up their noses and uh, into their lungs and so on. But be that as it may, there are some truly great songs on that album, some truly great moments, and the instrumental that starts it off is one of those great moments. Now, looking around us right now, what we see in action during our time, you know, during our our daily lives certainly gives us the impression that uh, we are indeed staring or breathing through the lungs of hell and that things are just getting worse yeah. by the day and you know it's easy for me to sit here and or stand here and pontificate with a nice latte that I've made myself using my own coffee machine by the way uh, which I just bought uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's fantastic, it's bloody brilliant um, First coffee, first real coffee machine I've ever owned, but um, it's easy for me to pontificate with, you know, the without sounding like I'm in the middle of it. But the reality is, we're all in the middle of it. And what I'm telling you now, what I will tell you in the future of this podcast itself, comes from my own experiences as much as from what I'm observing around me. When. You look around the world today, what you're seeing is a world obviously gone completely mad. We're living in clown world. And you can see that particularly with respect to the response to uh, the coof, the scamdemic, the the, uh, resulting lockdowns in various countries, and so on and so forth. It's been nothing short of a disaster. What you're seeing around the world is... A very clear sense of things coming to a head. You can see, I mean, in Australia, for instance, uh, my good friend John C911, on whose podcast I was, I appeared last week, talked about how the lockdowns are getting worse and worse in Australia, how the requirements of the uh, governments are getting more and more stupid. And they truly are. The Northern Territories government. Recently announced that uh, essentially they were going full steam ahead with vaccine passports, uh, digital certificates that indicated whether or not you've been vaccinated, and if you hadn't been vaccinated, you would be essentially locked out of the economy. the The premier of that state essentially, literally, said outright, "If you uh, choose not to be vaccinated, that's your choice, but." you will then no longer have access to a very wide range of services you cannot expect to live a normal life so essentially what they're saying is you will be vaccinated whether you like it or not now this is despite the known fact at this point that the vaccines are generally useless they are not sterilizing vaccines they will not stop you from getting the coup they will not stop you from getting sick the maximum that they will do is stop you from getting really sick to the point where you need a hospital. That's it. That's all they're good for. These will not stop you from passing on the virus, from transmitting it. They they, The protection doesn't even last that long. If uh, if you're looking at uh, the Pfizer or Moderna shots, which are mRNA vaccines, they don't work for very long. You get maybe six months of protection. After that, you have to get a booster shot. and After that, you have to get another booster shot and so on and so forth. What we're seeing, therefore, is the destruction of our rights and the destruction of our way of life and the destruction, indeed, of the legitimacy of governments. In Australia, they don't have a written constitution. They don't have a Bill of Rights like they do in the United States. The UK doesn't have it either, which is why in the UK the lockdowns were pretty severe and pretty stupid and the government could get away with it because there was no enumerated bill of rights saying you will not be allowed to do this. In the US, the lockdowns were still pretty stupid, but it really depended on where you were. I mean, if you were in a, if you were in a big blue uh, city like New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, it was really bad. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you couldn't do anything for nigh on a year. Um, but if you were in a deep red state, And a deep red county, then by and large, you didn't really feel it so much. People just didn't obey the stupid mask mandates and the idiotic social distancing mandates. They just got on with their lives, and they didn't see the need to get up in everybody else's business about it. What we're looking at, however, is a world with a deranged, debased mindset. Where governments around the world think that they have the right to tell everyone else what to do for the sake of public safety. And really it comes down to a much more fundamental reason. Why are they able to get away with this? Well, the reason is very simple. People are chicken shits. They're cowards. People have had it too good for too long. Most of the really scary realities of life have basically been eliminated. And I'm not saying this is nothing new that I'm talking about. I've mentioned every single thing that I've said so far in previous podcasts and in previous posts. None of this is new. Where governments have been able to exploit us really thoroughly is in our fear of death. All of us are terrified of dying. I will freely admit, you know, even as a Christian, I am scared of dying. I'm not scared of death. I'm scared of the process of dying. I know, you know, once I'm dead, well, I get to meet the big man upstairs. I mean, it's not going to be a front meeting because he's basically going to sit there and tell me everything that I've done wrong. And it's going to be a very ugly, I think, affair. Um, because it's going to be a damn long list but at least I'll get a chance to meet him because you know, I accepted that free offer of redemption, which most people will never get the chance to do that because they've rejected it. But the process of getting there is going to be very unpleasant. There's a, you know, a standard phrase kicking around in the manosphere. You know, you're born alone in pain, Screaming. And you'll die alone and in pain. And that's basically true. You are most likely going to die alone. And if you're very, very lucky and you've had a good life and you've done things right, you'll probably die surrounded by your loved ones. And that's wonderful. That's 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 a a great thing. But it's not going to happen for many of us. Most of us are faced with a very long, slow, painful death. There's no warrior's death here. And there's a reason why ancient cultures, ancient warrior cultures in particular, revered the idea of a good death in battle. For them, the idea of dying alone, old, infirm, incontinent in your bed was disgusting. The Vikings held in the highest possible esteem the men who died screaming in knee deep in the blood of their enemies with Horrendous wounds, but in battle, and so did most of the ancient warrior cultures that we have come to appreciate and respect today. Ours is not one of those cultures; ours is a weak, effeminate, supine, broken culture. We have forgotten what it means to fear death or uh, well no that's 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 wrong we have forgotten what it means to Embrace death, I should say. It's exactly, I've got it exactly wrong. We've forgotten what it means to embrace death, to look forward to a good death. Um, there's a, a great poem by the ancient, the uh, highly regarded war chief Tecumseh, uh, American Indian, who fought against the colonials and against the American government, and. He wrote a, um, he wrote, I think, some advice basically. He wrote a letter of some kind in which he said, Uh, when it is your time, die basically, sing your death song proudly and die like a warrior going home. And those words have always stuck with me because that's the kind of death that we should aspire to. Do not plead for another moment of life like a woman, uh but die proudly. We've forgotten what it means to die proudly. And because of that, we are terrified of dying. We're terrified of death. We've lost track of the wonder and glory of meeting our Creator in the afterlife. We've lost our fear of hell because we've convinced ourselves that the devil doesn't exist, that hell doesn't exist. The Catholics have done a great deal to convince us that, um, for instance, most people aren't really going to go to hell. Well, no, actually that's not true. The Bible is very clear about this. Most people are going to hell. Most people who f- openly reject the either the laws of God or the freely proffered gift of his sacrifice upon the cross are going to hell, whether you like it or not, because they have outright rejected the free gift of salvation, which means they have rejected God's presence in their lives. Or they have accepted false gods into their lives and have chosen to worship at the altars of things and uh, entities that ensure their damnation. This is not a happy set of circumstances or outcomes in which we find ourselves. This is not a good way to live our lives. But because we have lost track of things that we should be afraid of, you know, real dangers in life, such as war, uh, starvation, uh, economic collapse, and various other really, really horrific things, because we've gotten too comfortable... Because we've forgotten what it means to fear and revere the Almighty, we are terrified of our own mortality. And because of that, that's the one fear that the government is able to exploit most readily. The reality is that most of us will survive the coup. The reality is that most of us will survive a major economic depression. The reality is that most of us will actually survive a serious war, uh, barring the outright nuclear war, obviously. Most of us will, statistically speaking, be fine. But it is our fear of dying that governments exploit, and they have done it beautifully. Where does this come from? Well, scripturally, all of this it has been noted before. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you go and read Romans chapter 1, everything that we're going through right now, every last detail, can be found there. It's not difficult to see a reflection of our own times in a letter from 2,000 years ago. If you go to Romans chapter 1 and you look at, uh, I think, verses 18 onwards, my computer's being a bit slow, um because the VPN connection needs to be reset, of course. But uh, if you if you look at that, and you look at the actual evidence that's that's in, or the, the actual uh, idea that's being preached in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 onwards, and what does it say? Well, if you look at that chapter, here's what the English Standard Version says. You, know, you can choose your own translation. It'll turn out to be kind of more or less the same thing. inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Where else will you find a more concise summary of what we're going through today? Look at it line by line and you will find a perfect summation of every single thing we're dealing with right now. It's the same set of circumstances, the same set of problems. And it always comes down to our faithlessness, our refusal to acknowledge our Creator and fear Him and revere Him and give homage to Him. That's where it's coming from. If you look at the countries where they have not had this problem, and I'll speak from my own experience here. If you look at Russia, for instance, Russia is now undergoing a major Christian revival. The Orthodox Christian faith, I have my issues with it. I have my problems with the ways in which both the Orthodox and Catholic churches substitute redemption by works for redemption through faith. But one thing you cannot fault the Russian Orthodox Church for is its appreciation for and promotion of hard manliness, hard masculinity. The Russian Orthodox Church really believes in men being men and not dicking about with nonsense. Now, there are a lot of social problems in Russia that this paper's over, and I'm well aware that I'm kind of giving an overly favorable veneer to Russian society. Uh, if you actually go there, you'll see very quickly that it has some very serious social problems. But a lack of faith is not one of them, not anymore. In Russia, you are basically free to live as you please right now. They don't have these stupid mask mandates, vaccine passports, uh, digital COVID certificates, any of this crap. They do have a high level of corruption, true. They do have a high degree of nepotism, true. They do have a rather challenging uh, economic situation, absolutely. But they have freedom. Why do they have freedom? Because they respect, ultimately, the giver of those freedoms. Meanwhile, if you look over in Australia, which is no longer a white Christian country, you see the world's largest open-air prison. That's what it's become. The men there have given themselves over to dishonorable passions. Well, yeah. Ever been to Sydney? If you go to King's Cross uh, in Sydney, that is basically a gay town. And that's what it was when I was living there, and it's probably gotten 10 times worse since I left. Um, there is a large gay community in Australia, and it is quite militant and quite flamboyant and believes in flouting such things in your face, or flaunting such things, I should say. If you go to the United Kingdom, which is, again, another post-Christian society, you'll see the same thing. The United Kingdom used to be 80-plus percent white and 80-plus percent Christian. It is now, uh, what... white, thereabouts, maybe less, and it's 20% Christian, and when I say Christian, quote unquote, um, they're Anglicans, by and large, not all of them, I mean, you've got your usual smattering of Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, there are quite a few of them, in fact, Catholics here uh, in the UK, which is good, Uh, there there are quite a few Catholics in the UK itself, Um, but I mean, when I say it's good, what I mean by that is it's better than being an Anglican, uh, because the Anglican Church has no idea what it stands for. The Catholic Church at least has some clue what it stands for, even though there's a lot wrong with it, uh, and a lot wrong with their rights, and a very great deal wrong with their doctrine. Um, for those, if, if you are Catholic listening into this, please understand, I don't have a problem with you personally. I really don't. I mean, I regard most of the doctrinal differences between various denominations to be little better than food fights. I myself am a non-denominational Christian. I don't care about whether this rite is better than that rite, or this ritual is more important than that ritual. I just don't care. For me, what matters is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he said, what he did on the cross for us. That's what matters. All the ritual aspects of it is just... For me, that's, that's just garnish. But... If you are, if you as a Catholic claim that the Virgin Mary was born without sin, well, you kind of have a problem. Uh, if you as a Catholic claim that it is correct and absolutely right to sacrifice Jesus over and over and over again every single time you do the Mass, that's a big problem, doctrinally speaking. And if you accept as a Catholic, uh, Pope the Blessed John Paul II's, uh, belief and view, that all religions all uh, faith movements around the world have their own interpretation of god and can come back to god then you've got a really big problem i mean i have a lot of respect for john paul ii i believe his work his fight against communism was incredibly vital and important but there's a lot wrong with that doctrine that you know everyone can get to heaven no no everyone's not going to get to heaven most people aren't gonna to get to heaven. I'm pretty sure, I'm actually virtually certain I'm not gonna be there. Um, I don't think God's gonna look at my life very approvingly at all. Uh, and that that's not fun to think about. But when you look around at the world as it is, and you see the brokenness of it, understand that this brokenness is a direct result of a very specific failure To give power and credibility to God. All of these, all, all of the stupidity, all of the craziness that we're seeing, it's just a symptom. The root cause, the real infection is that, that we've failed to give proper place, proper, uh, respect and reverence to God. That's where it's coming from. All of the dysfunctional, dishonorable, evil things that governments are doing around the world come from their belief that the state is central to life, not God, not the freedoms that arise from God as the ultimate indisputable arbiter of truth, the the uncreated first, the uncaused first cause from which all other causes have resulted once you dispense with the idea of God, what are you left with? You, you're, you're left with the ideas of man, none of which have very firm foundation. You cannot claim natural law to be the foundation of your social order, because you have to then first define what natural law is. Well, how do you define natural law? Um, it's the law of nature. Okay, who defines what nature's law is? Um, nature defines it. That's a self-defeating argument. You can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. It's a dumb idea. In order to come up with a law, you have to have a law-giver, by definition. So if you can't find, or if you reject outright, a law-giver in the form of a supreme deity, then you're left to substitute for it a man-made law. The problem with a man-made law is that, of course, a man can come along, or men can come along later and change it. Which is exactly what's happened. Every government around the world that has implemented lockdowns and vaccine passports has done so because it disrespects the idea of a creator who endowed his creation with freedoms. With free will. The free will to accept or reject him as we choose. So, if you're going to do that, if you're going to have the state instead of God as prime mover, then, by definition, you will inevitably have a situation where the government can make up things as it goes along. Well, again, Romans chapter 1. Not just Romans chapter 1, but specifically Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Right, you know, That passage right there, that's exactly what we're going through right now. So what are we going to do about it? I mean, I am sick and tired of listening to people complaining about it, saying, well, this is all so unfair, this is all so terrible, this is horrible, this is awful. Okay, what are you going to do about it? The f- there are three steps, really, to dealing with this situation that we find ourselves in. The first is passive resistance. You f- you, the first thing you have to understand is that you always have a choice whether to comply or not. And for many people, it's going to be very easy to comply because they're going to dangle in front of you the carrot of having a decent life again. Um, and for people with families, that I, you know, I, I will readily admit, it's much easier if you to succumb and give in if you have families. Because we humans, you know, it's, it's just the truth, we are social animals uh social disapproval and ostracism is an incredibly effective mechanism by which outsiders can enforce their will. It's very 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 effective. I know uh, an old friend of mine living in the states right now who got the jab, Pfizer jab. she didn't trust it. She was like, I'm you know this is stuff is dangerous I, I don't believe it's good for me She got the jab because that was the only way that her child's friends would, like the the parents of her child's friends, would allow her child to play with their kids. That's the only reason why she did it. So she views it as like a sacrifice for her child's future. Okay, that's an argument. You can make that argument. Is it necessarily a good one? No, but I get where she's coming from and I don't judge her for it. I can't judge her for it, because I've never been in that situation myself. Many of you who have children who are listening to this will know that feeling of pressure. that You know, you have to do this to make sure that your child will be better off. Well, it's your choice. You have to figure out what to do. I'm not here to tell you that you're necessarily right or wrong to get a vaccine per se. And I am not against vaccination, personally. I am not against the idea of vaccines. I am against stupidity, and I am against blatantly uh, scientific, not scientific, but scientific uh, attempts to engineer society in ways that are incredibly damaging. Uh, this comes down to the distinction between science as method, and science as profession. Uh, If you actually look at science, it's not one indivisible, all-knowing, monolithic entity. Science, as we understand it, is actually three, and really today, four separate things. Science is, number one, scientoddy, the scientific method. Or actually, if you want to take a step back even further, science is scientage, the body of transparently testable, available knowledge. Number two, scientody the scientific method of hypothesis, test, acceptance, rejection. Uh, and retest and keep testing until you think you've got a, a good, workable theory. Number three, scientistry, which is to say the profession of science. It's what scientists do. And that is very different from Scientology. Scientistry involves getting research grants and reviewing papers and uh, letting people into your peer group in order that they might join the club and be part of your little scientific establishment. That's a very different story from doing science. The fourth and worst aspect of science, modern science, that we have today to deal with is scientism. It is the religion of science, the belief in the primacy of the scientist as a disinterested, all-knowing, all-capable, almost demigod-like figure. And it's absolute rubbish. I mean, there's there's nothing whatsoever to suggest that scientists are any uh, less human than any of the rest of us. They are human. They are subject to the foibles and whims and biases and prejudices of the human condition. You cannot get away from this if you are human. They are simply people doing a job. Not necessarily very well either. So when you have scientists trying to do things that they are blatantly unqualified to do and utterly useless at offering opinions upon being taken seriously by governments who do not have the moral authority or backbone to do what they're doing, but have arrogated to themselves those powers anyway, then you have a very, very dangerous situation, which is exactly what we're in right now. No scientist anywhere in the world has all of the necessary information about anything to make any kind of deterministic judgment. Science is nothing more than hypothesis testing at its core, you know, and within the scientific definition of the term. Science is essentially testing to see if something is true or false. There is a word for repeatable, reliable, genuine science, and that word is engineering. And by the way, nothing that I've said for the last five minutes is an original thought of mine. Everything that I've said comes from uh, beloved and dreaded supreme dark lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day, who came up with this framework of, you know, scientist, scientage, scientoddy, and scientistry, and now scientism, uh, which is a relatively new addition to the canon. But all of this is um, has been known for many years. I mean, nothing that I'm saying is new in any way. It's not original, and I make no claims whatsoever to be an original thinker. When we are dealing with an immoral government or immoral world governments, immoral uh, branches of society, all colluding to do immoral things, the root of that immorality comes from a failure to give respect and reverence to God. That's the first step to recovering our freedoms, is in accepting that God is the solution that we were given freedoms and that we were given a very healthy fear of death by a God who wants us to accept the gift of eternal life by accepting Him, who wants to be reunited with His creation and He wants to fix His broken creation. He wants to fix something that we broke. He wants to fix a problem that we caused. Now, you could ask, well, Why, if God is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, etc., etc., why did he permit sin? Well, it's very simple. God doesn't want slaves. I mean, the Islamic God might want slaves, but our God doesn't. Our God wants free-willed creatures who love him of our own desire to do so. Which leads to the question, well, why did he create matter in the first place, if he knew everything that was coming? Firstly, I don't believe he did. I believe that God directly limits his knowledge of what's coming because he can. He God knows what he chooses to know, I think, is, is the best way to put it. And that, again, not my formulation. This is Vox Day's formulation, and I think he's right. Uh, as with like 99% of other things, I think he's right. But God himself is there as kind of a steward or... Um, guardian over his own creation, but he he doesn't interfere with it beyond a certain point. He basically gives us just enough rope with which we can hang ourselves if we so choose. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we've been doing. The path forward is very, very clear. And as I said earlier, there are three steps to getting back to it. The first is passive resistance. You have to understand what your red line is. I'm not here to tell you what that is. You have to make up your own mind. Maybe for you that red line is the vaccine, that you will not take it under any circumstances. Okay, then you have to accept that your life is going to be a hell of a lot harder than it would be if you just complied. Where I'm living, the government is looking to tear up a lot of the really stupid rules about traveling, but they're going to create a two-tiered society where those who have been fully jabbed will be able to travel almost freely. I mean, they can just go overseas, they can come back, they can get a cheaper test, uh, and they don't have to self-isolate or do any of that stupid nonsense. Um, But those who have not been fully jabbed, if they go overseas and come back, then they will have to pay for an expensive test, and they will have to self-isolate for 10 days um, and avoid any contact. I mean, it's an onerous system. And not everybody is going to be strong enough to resist. Uh, despite the reality that COVID is not very dangerous. You know, I mean, I've probably had it. And you know, today I'm fine. Um, the, there are lots of people, my own family, in, in fact, would argue, well, you can't be so blasé about it because of long COVID. Okay, well, let's talk about long COVID. Uh, long COVID appears to be pretty much what anybody says it is. Memory loss, fatigue, uh, nausea, hair loss, uh, lack of sense of smell, um, muscle aches, you know, spasms, blurred vision, etc., uh, etc. Et any number of symptoms that could be attributed to any number of other conditions have been lumped in under long COVID. Well, how do we know that that's what's causing it? We don't. We don't know that. The only symptom that you could reasonably ascribe to the Kung Flu over the long term, you know, the lung power sicken, as <laughs> as reactionary kraut um, or reactionary teen, whatever his, his name is, uh, his handle has called it, which is hysterical. I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen anyone call anything. Um, that may well be a long term side effect. I don't know. Could be. Um, I have not suffered it, but there are people who have. I don't diminish their suffering. It is a miserable condition. It's horrible. It's awful. But can we be sure that that's what's causing it? Or is there another underlying pathology? If you read Virus Mania, uh, which is a book written by the latest edition, the sixth edition, has contributions from the absolutely gorgeous and very, very charming, Dr. Sam Bailey, in it. Uh, The book tries to make the case for terrain theory, which essentially says that pathogens themselves are not the problem. We are, like, our bodies are riddled with pathogens, absolutely riddled. We have billions of organisms living inside of us and on us and around us. And the reality is that most of these pathogens are completely harmless. They do no harm, no damage whatsoever to us, until something comes along to unsettle our bodies and um, cause us problems. Well, what is that? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be any number of things. You know, temperature could be lower. Uh, we eat something that's not good for us, and that causes an infection. Um, we are become deficient in. Sleep, or vital minerals, or exercise, or psychological uh, well-being, spiritual well-being even. Um, it's very rare, relatively speaking, according to terrain theory, that we are genuinely infected by something that is really dangerous for us. Now, I have my problems with this book, and maybe I'll do a review or podcast about it later on. Uh, I have specific, very serious issues with the book's treatment of DDT as a menace, which is what it thinks it is when it's not. Uh, I have specific problems with the way it uses the example of Dr. Stefan Lanka's bet about uh, the measles virus. And I have very specific problems with the way the book talks about uh, SARS, uh, about covid and about a few other things here and there where I'm like, eh, hang on a second, I, I don't agree with this at all. I mean, there are, there are some serious problems with its logic. But the overall point that the book makes is that we are, we are scared to death of pathogens that really aren't that dangerous for us. And vaccines are not always the answer. You're Going hunting for a virus, frantically, to, to explain something that may have much more complex underlying root causes is very stupid and i think i think the book makes a good point there i think it is it is correct in making this argument because that's certainly what we've seen over the last uh two years almost going on two years it's been a disaster for the virus hunters um up until the point where covid was supposedly discovered now Again, something is causing everybody to fall sick with a very similar set of symptoms across a very disparate range of uh, nationalities, races, geographies, sexes, uh, you know, underlying conditions, health conditions, underlying uh, economic conditions. I mean, across the board, people are getting sick with a similar set of symptoms, which indicates there's some sort of pathogen going around, but. Is it as lethal as we've been told? Well, of course not. It's nowhere near as lethal. I mean, the reality is most people who get COVID are going to be just fine. And most people who get COVID in the long term are going to be just fine. So we shouldn't be scared of it. We shouldn't live our lives in terror of this disease that has a very, very low chance of killing us. But that's exactly what most people are. Passive resistance comes down to deciding where your line is and where you will not bend. I decided a long time ago the vaccine was it. I just, I I refuse to get it because it's nothing about it makes any sense to me. Nothing about it. If you must get uh, jabbed, you know, if you're genuinely worried about your health, get the Russian version. Get the Sputnik vaccine because I think that's probably the least dangerous and least retarded out of all the vaccines. But be aware that the adverse effects from Sputnik are kind of similar to what you see with AstraZeneca. Um, blood clots, uh, thrombocytosis, and uh, seizures. Um, well documented, well recorded in many cases in Russia of those side effects. Uh, however, judging by its rollout in particularly the third world, it's by far the safest of the major vaccines. Um, that being said, like most of the vaccines, it probably has a relatively low uh protection span. You you Eventually, the antibody enhancement that it gives you will wear off. So at any rate, um, then it comes to active resistance. Well, that means that if they impose mask mandates on you or social distancing mandates, or they uh, require your employer to start checking on you, you actively resist. You basically tell them, that's it. You know, if your employer says you have to get jabbed, you're not working here anymore. Okay, you're not working there anymore. Quit. Find another job. Uh, That sounds terrifying in, in an environment with high unemployment, but actually, I mean, as difficult as this is to say, I've been unemployed for long stretches of my life and it's absolutely horrible. I understand what people are going through when they have that situation. It's just miserable. And I have great compassion for people who are afraid of losing their jobs. I've been in that position many times myself. I don't wish it on anyone. I mean, it's just, it's, it's awful. You don't want to be in that position where you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You have to decide whether you're willing to actively resist. But understand that if you believe, if you pay respect to God, if you fear God, as you should, then you also, at some point, you're going to have no choice. You have to actively resist. You are called upon to do it because of these dishonorable, uh, evil things that people ha- are doing to you where they have arrogated themselves to themselves rights that they never had, ever. And they're pretending that they have these rights and they're pushing their evil ideology upon you, and more importantly, upon your children. So what are you going to do about it? If it means that you have to tell, give your employer the finger and walk away, walk away. Just do it. It's not worth risking your life and your health with a jab that is uh, probably going to do you more harm than good. I mean, statistically speaking, the Pfizer and Moderna jabs are definitely going to do you more harm than good. And that's not me making things up. That's from an outright straightforward calculation of deaths of vaccinated versus unvaccinated people using the actual data coming out of Israel. And that's on Carl uh, Denninger's site. You can go to market-ticker.org and look it up. Uh, you can also go to the, um, talk to the Israelis themselves and they'll tell you much the same thing. Actually, the crisis right now in Israel is of the vaccinated going in feeling sick. Um the unvaccinated groups, actually the ultra-Orthodox types who refuse to get the vaccine, are doing pretty well in Israel. And that's remarkable. I mean, it's one of the highest um, proportions of vaccinated people in the world. And they're doing really badly, actually. Um, meanwhile, in India, th- this is where it gets really interesting. Um, the state of Madhya Pradesh... Which has about two hundred and twenty some million people. It's a shithole state in a shithole country, right? It's a it's a very very poor state, and you know India in general just has very terrible healthcare facilities. It's it's uh, very badly organised. Government is corrupt. Infrastructure is piss poor, etc. 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 You can you can say any number of horrible things about India, and you'd be right. You'd be absolutely right to say them. But Madhya Pradesh, the government there, basically uh, started using ivermectin, and the you know the the, the horse uh, dewormer, as it were. Uh, ivermectin is a drug that you can use to get rid of uh, worms that cause, among other things, elephantiasis. Uh, which, if you've ever seen pictures of people with elephantiasis, it's absolutely horrific. It's an awful disease, and uh, they get rid of worms that cause river blindness as well. Ivermectin. Apparently, it's a very, very useful prophylactic treatment for the Kung Flu. It works very well indeed. Madhya Pradesh, by using ivermectin, has essentially eliminated COVID in its state. Again, this is a piss-poor state. This is a state that by rights should be seeing COVID spreading like wildfire. And it's not. It's just stopped dead in its tracks. Meanwhile, the United States, with all of its development, all of its healthcare facilities, world-class, well, first-class, leading the world-leading healthcare system, is in deep trouble right now, supposedly. Cases shooting up, um, people getting sick, the vaccinated getting sick as well as the unvaccinated, which shouldn't happen. This is a situation where you cannot argue with the numbers, and numbers are very clear. An undeveloped, backward state is doing better than the world's most advanced economy. It's that simple. If your employer or your government is pushing these mandates upon you, therefore, you have to decide what the line in sand is. The third and worst step is violent resistance. And that's where we're going to. I'm not advocating for it. I don't want it. I'm not saying anyone should take up arms against the government. At least not, well... I'm not saying anyone should take up arms against the government on my advice, because that is sedition and uh, incitement to treason. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have to decide for yourself whether it's worth it. But I can't really blame people who do. I I really can't. I mean, I, I can't find it in myself to say to people, you're wrong for trying to overthrow your government at this point. Because the governments have become so detached from their people, so abusive, so tyrannical, so evil, that they can no longer claim to be representative of the people. And Lord knows, I mean, I have no respect for the concept of democracy in general, or very little, I should say. Not no respect, but very, very little. But I do believe that democracy provides a useful release valve, an outlet. When that release valve gets stopped back up, because the elites don't like what they're hearing from the... Uh, useless peons and subjects over whom they rule, then you have a situation that is ripe for bloody rebellion. It's exactly what's happening right now. The people who have unleashed these mandates upon us have no idea what they've set off. And I do think, and this is a bet that I'm taking over the long term, I don't have much more than some numbers to go on which indicate that we've got a serious problem brewing. I'm guessing that over the next 5 to 10 years as we see vaccine related complications arise with respect to people suffering heart attacks and dropping dead way before they should especially among young people who are getting jabbed way before they should be and they, I mean they're they're not at risk but they're getting jabbed nonetheless I'm betting that the very same doctors and government bureaucrats who foisted this stuff upon us are going to be hunted down and killed like dogs. Not advocating that. I'm not. I think that would be a terrible tragedy if it happens. But I think that's what we're likely to see. And that's why I titled this podcast, really, The Lungs of Hell. Because what we're looking at in the not-so-distant future, is a very, very bleak scenario. This is not going to end well for anybody. If these lockdown policies, these vaccine mandates, and so on and so forth, are successful, they're not going to restore society to anything like pre-COVID levels. It's not going to happen. There is a very interesting theory kicking around on t- interwebs about how the lockdowns had to take place in order to avert a catastrophic economic meltdown signaled by a massive spike in the repo markets in September of 2019. And I think there's good reason to believe that this is true. The more I read into it, the more I'm convinced that this is actually what happened. The fault lines and fissures in the economy in the U.S. and much of the Western world were becoming so large and so severe due to the truly, I mean, biblical doesn't even begin to cover it. It, It's like this: the the credit bubble that grew out of the 2008 financial crisis with unprecedented intervention by central banks in the economy, which stopped a lot of the really nasty problems from being fixed, a lot of the malinvestments from being cleared out, those problems have just gotten a lot worse because of that intervention. In the end, central banks or well, not in the end, but in 2019, central banks around the world stepped in to provide unprecedented levels of support in the commercial paper and repo markets. Now, if you don't know anything about finance and financial engineering, this won't mean a damn thing to you. But understand, I mean, I spent 10 years in that world I know it pretty well. Understand that without the repo market you don't have a functioning economy. The repo market allows most companies to meet their overnight obligations, payroll, uh, supply chain, uh, operations, um, administrative expenses, unforeseen immediate costs which can't be met with cash on hand in the bank, all of that stuff. The repo market needs to function. And it needs to function at a relatively low rate of interest because, again, you're talking overnight or very short-term loans. If you're being charged 10% on an overnight loan, no one in his right mind is going to make that loan or take that loan. Um, but that's what happened in 2019. What we're looking at right now is kind of an attempt by the global elites to keep the global economy limping along in a way that won't break everything. And I don't think it's going to work because the the governance systems and the self-regulating mechanisms that are supposed to stop these things from happening don't exist anymore. The mechanisms that would force bankrupt firms to go bankrupt and eliminate their debts and their liabilities no longer function properly. So we have a situation in which there are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of zombie corporations all around the world chewing up vast amounts of capital, incapable of really turning any kind of profit, leaving healthy firms starved for sustenance. This is not going to end well, but the COVID pandemic gave the elites the excuse that they needed to step in and stop the crash from happening, which was inevitable and is inevitable and will happen. All they've done is kick the can much further down the road, or at least they think they have, but they really haven't. What they're doing now is essentially a way to enforce complete compliance with their program to stop the coming crash. That's about all I can read into it, but the dangers are very real and very severe, and you have to be aware of them, and you have to be prepared for them. And you have to understand where they're coming from, because if you don't understand where they're coming from, you don't know how to fix them. The way to fix them is to understand that these dangers come from our turning away from God and from the supreme judge of the universe who has... Absolute moral authority over the universe. We've turned away from that. There are consequences for this. And we're seeing those consequences unfolding before our eyes. And in the end, we will go straight into the lungs of hell if we're not. Very, very quick about deciding where we stand and what we're willing to stand for. Not just what we're willing to stand against, but what we're willing to stand against. 4. And with that thought, uh, I think it's time for me to wrap up. It's been about an hour. So uh, it's been fun. Uh, I I always enjoy uh, doing these podcasts. I mean, I always end up with a mighty thirst afterwards because I'm just yakking for an hour. But uh, hopefully you have learned something useful. Hopefully you have gained some useful insights from this. And uh, as always, please feel free to comment either here on the podcast or on the site. And I'll be happy to read your comments and hopefully respond to them in a timely fashion, we'll see. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. It's been a pleasure. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 84, The Lungs of Hell. And this is Didact, signing off.